done really, really well. Our generation has done really, really well at the expense of the younger generation. We've, we have eaten the seed corn of our children and our grandchildren, and we feel no remorse. That's immoral. Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin in the Bible podcast, a show for Christians who love God's word, care about sound money, and want to learn more about the moral case for Bitcoin. Join us today as we hold fast to God's word and hodl Bitcoin. My name is Simon, and I'm joined by my friends, Will and David. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? Hey, Simon. I, I'm, I'm laughing to myself here because we would normally be sitting around having these conversations because we love the Bible and Bitcoin, uh, but now we get to record them and share the recordings with you, which is humorous in and of itself. But today I thought we'd talk about an interesting question. And I, I think it's important for us all to think about it this way, right? The, the question, is it too late to repent? And, and normally if I was to ask you guys that question, you were to, might think to yourself, well, is he calling me to repent of my sins and trust in Jesus Christ? And, and that's true. Normally if I ask a person that question, they, they're thinking repent and trust in Christ. And, and, and if I asked you, is it, is it too late to repent of your sins? You'd say no. It's never too late, right? Any believer knows that the, the opportunity for the gospel to penetrate the heart and to change the mind and to open the eyes of those who are lost, it's never too late. And we would always seek out the opportunity to have that conversation. Uh, but in the context that we're talking today, I'm calling you to repent of trusting in unjust fiat money and trust in God's providence by learning how to own and to hold Bitcoin. And so as we look at that today, let me review just a couple of the core principles that we, we share together here on the Bitcoin the Bible podcast. Uh, the first of which is we are merely servants of God. And this podcast exists for his glory, not our own. Uh, we're not doing this to become famous or rich. We're doing this because we believe that God is worthy and we want his name to be glorified. Uh, the second core principle is that our passion for Bitcoin pales in comparison to our passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ first, everything else, including Bitcoin, second. Uh, the third core principle that we are committed to is that uh, God's design is for the local church and for the elder shepherds to care for the people of that local church. And we are not the elders at your local church, and we do not intend to replace their God-ordained purpose in your life. Uh, fourthly, our, our prayer is that we speak and live the truth, but as fallible human men, we refuse to pridefully claim that we have the corner on God's truth. As such, we, we really entrust these discussions and our opinions in this realm to the biblical process of, of iron sharpening iron. Uh, we are open to correction. We delight in comparing our ideas and yours to God's truth. So we would really invite you to, to interact with us as you think about and process what we're saying today. And if, if something we're saying is not true, then let us know so that we can correct it. Now, as we get going today here, I just want to give a little bit more context to the reality that our discussion today is intended to string together uh, some definitions and some thoughts and, and some questions and uh, the goal is that we'll be able to help all of our listeners, no matter how old they are or how young they are, no matter how much they know about money, no matter how much they know about uh, Bitcoin itself, eh, no, matter how, no matter how much they know about the Bible, 
Uh, we want each and every one of them to come to the exact same realization that each of us came to in the past year, that our current fiat monetary system is unjust and it's incapable of holding monetary value. I believe once you arrive at this crisis moment, you must act in some way, even if that action is simply to start by investing your most precious resource, which is your time, in researching your monetary alternatives to fiat. I'm confident that once you cross that threshold and you start the research, your path will end at Bitcoin. So got a couple of questions for you guys today, and we're going to do this a little more interactive style. So I'm going to throw out a question and have each of you kind of think through that a little bit. And I'm sure that's going to stimulate some rabbit trails. We'll try to keep ourselves on track here. But I think the first question that I came to last year, and again, Will, you helped me. David, you helped me with this. Both of you have spoken into my life and given me clarity where I did not have that clarity previously. So similarly, speak to our listeners today and let's look, think about this question. What is fiat money? Let's define it. And then let's further go down that trail and say, why is saving in a dollar denominated fiat asset not tenable for Christians today? Will, you want to take a stab at it? Uh, sure, I'll go for it. Uh, I think before we can talk about what fiat is, it, it, it's often misconstrued. So let's talk about what it's not. If you have ever heard Peter Schiff or um, many other economic commentators, they will refer to fiat money as money that is unbacked. So they will often try to lump Bitcoin in with other fiat currencies or, or uh, economic systems. And they will say, well, Bitcoin is not backed by anything and thus it is fiat. Fiat is the Latin word for decree. So a fiat money is simply a money that has come into existence by decree of the government. So you could have gold be fiat money if gold has been decreed by the government as money. So the idea of a fiat money is that it, the, the government that is in power has come in and said, this is what we will all use as money. We decree that it is such and we are preempting the free market's ability to select the best money for this economy or this, this locale or, or region or people. So uh, just as, a, as a, a first principles kind of thing, Bitcoin is not fiat money uh, in many jurisdictions. Bitcoin is now fiat money in El Salvador. Bitcoin has been decreed to be money in El Salvador. And so thus it is it is fiat. It is, it is by law. It is by decree. Throughout the rest of the world, it is free market selected money. And now even in El Salvador, there are competing monies now. Bitcoin is competing alongside the dollar. And so there is still free market opportunity. Governments enforce the fiat, the decree, by a secondary decree, which is the taxes have to be paid in the government money. And of course, everybody has to pay taxes. And so by decreeing, you must pay your taxes in the government's decreed money. They then enforce it, the fiat, upon everyone. And you'll take a look at a, at a Federal Reserve note. It says on it, you know, this is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So by decree, they're saying that this, this piece of paper or, or digitally uh, has to be accepted. Um, 
it has to be used to pay taxes. You can't pay your taxes and anything else. You can't, you can't turn over gold. You can't give them your real estate. You have to, it has to be turned into U.S. dollars. And the, and U.S. dollars are the means by which public and private debts in this country are paid off. And so those are the elements of the fiat currency. That's what makes it fiat. And just to add on to that, there's, there's the, you must pay your taxes. And there's also legal tender laws that you as a business must accept in which you, you alluded to in the all debts, public and private. So it's not just that all public debts have to be paid. You know, it's not just, oh, I have to pay the state in dollars, but no, if I, if I open up a business, it doesn't matter whether I like the dollar or not, the government doesn't care. They're mandating, you must accept this. Right. Or they throw you in jail. And I think the last aspect of fiat money that I think I want to draw out a little bit here is the reality that not only does the government mandate that this is what you use, they also have control over there's this much of it, right? And as we've uh, all kind of thought about and laughed about and cried about is the reality that there is no monetary uh, unit of exchange that has ever survived government control, right? They've all debased. And we are in the process of seeing that debasement occur because the reality is that once you give the government the control over the supply of the money, you lose the the denominator. You can't control it any longer. And, and any civilization in modern history or pre-modern history is, a, is, is testament to that reality. No government money survives. The, the, the politicians cannot resist the temptation to debase the currency in order to provide the bread and circuses to the people and keep themselves in power. It's inevitable. Money printing is a drug. You get that initial hit and it, it stimulates short term. Everything feels good. You've, you feel like you've accomplished something good, but it, it eats away at the, the core of the economy, just like Drugs are eating away at the core of, of your body and your and your soul. And once you've gone down that path, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are. You can't stop. In fact, we probably should point out at this time that how worldwide that the monetary system of the world, the various currencies, they're all fiat currencies, are all debt-based currencies. In other words, every time a dollar of debt is created, uh, a monetary unit, springs into existence. Every time a dollar of debt is extinguished, a monetary unit is extinguished with it. And so uh, that puts us, and we talked about this in the last episode, it puts us on the, on the debt train that, that debt must continue to grow or the monetary base evaporates. And you can, you can see clear evidence of that, you know, Couple of, couple of numbers. Back in 1981, I'm old enough to remember that. Back in 1981, the national debt was a trillion dollars. By 2020, we we're at 26 trillion dollars. And uh, the last number I looked through June 30th of this year, we're now at 28 trillion dollars. The, the national debt is increasing exponentially. And just to give a little color to that curve, I was in high school in 2004 through 2008. My economics class that I took, our economics teacher would pull up the debt clock and we were approaching $7 trillion at that point. So you can say $7 trillion in 2005, $26 trillion by 2020. The slope of this curve is, is just incomprehensible. It has gone full vertical. So we are now at the place where debt is doubling 
every four years or so. Where does it end? Because every time a new dollar is, is borrowed into existence, all prior existing dollars lose value. So ex- explain that for, for a second. When a new dollar is borrowed into existence, so are you implying that, that dollars just spring to life out of nowhere? I am indeed. I'm not implying it. I'm stating it. <laughs> you can go to the Federal Reserve's own website and they will clearly tell you how it works. Your bank does not have, you go to the bank and you make a deposit. They don't, they don't hide it away in a safe somewhere and, until the next customer comes in to borrow it back out. If you, if you go in to make a deposit, that, that money becomes a liability of the bank. That's not an asset of the bank. The bank's assets are loans. And the bank, every time the bank creates a loan, it creates an asset and money springs into existence. So you go to buy a car, let's say, and you, you get a car loan. Right? It's not like they go to the vault and, and dig out the $70,000 for your new F-150. There's a couple of keystrokes and $70,000 just popped into existence, transferred to the car dealer, you drive out of the showroom, and, uh, and the monetary base has grown. And that's from, you're saying that's from, from private banks and from small banks. Not, it's not even all the way up at the central control level of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. And for those who might be getting a little bit lost, uh, this was me last year sitting and, and listening to these guys have these conversations. I can recommend to you an excellent book called Layered Money. Uh, Layered Money is a, is a great book written, written, by, written by Nick Batia. It obviously comes at it from a Bitcoin perspective, but it really takes the time to explain the historical development of the banking system and and how governments have taken that banking system and used it as a mechanism for them to basically print dollars using U.S. Treasury bonds as that reserve asset that underlies those dollars. But I think what we're all speaking to is that the government spends more than it brings in. And offsetting that spending by lending to itself is functionally increasing the money supply at a rate that we've never seen before. Now, we're not in Venezuela, we're not in Lebanon, we're not in countries that have, have seen hyperinflation, but we're looking down the corridors of time and saying that's not too far away, given the reality that our government seems to have an insatiable appetite for printing their way out of whatever problem happens to come their way. And in reality, nobody has the fiscal integrity to stop that. And even if they tried, even if 100% taxation was imposed upon the United States as GDP, there's no way we can pay off that debt. We are simply going to print ourselves into oblivion. Sure. And that's why the whole debt ceiling is nothing but political theater. The debt ceiling was put in place a long time ago, and it's been violated. I don't even, I've lost count of the number of times. So it'll be a little political theater coming up here because we're at the debt ceiling again. There'll be these predictions about, oh, the United States, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we'll default. The United States will never default. Any country that can print its own currency to pay its debts will never default on those debts, at least not formally and legally. But they will debase the currency. And I will argue that they are defaulting on their debts by debasing the currency with which they pay them. Those are debts public and private. So... You Social Security uh, recipients, uh, they've made promises to you. Alan Greenspan himself said in congressional testimony, look it up on, on YouTube, that the government will never default formally on Social Security. 
but he cannot, they cannot, the Fed will not guarantee the purchasing power of the dollars that they will pay you. And that goes for pensions and, and everything else. So yeah, not a formal default, but very much a default, which is a, a fundamental reason why I would argue that this is an immoral system. It is designed to debase. Because the letter of the law for these contracts is the quantity of dollars that will be repaid, but the spirit of the law is the purchasing power implied by that quantity. So to go back and, and debase the dollar after you've established these obligations is to then go back and, and say, yeah, sure, I'll pay you back the number of things I said, but they're just worth a whole lot less. Exactly. And, and maybe it would, maybe an illustration Let's say that you designed some sort of a, a better mousetrap and you were, you were building it in your garage and, and, and putting your labor and capital to work at building this mousetrap that you intended to sell. And then, you know, the government can come along and all of a sudden they create 100,000 identical mousetraps, as it were, and release them into the market. What happens to the value of your mousetraps that you've spent your, your, your labor to and your life force really to create they're they're devalued they're debased and that's exactly what's going on as the as the debt rises the currency units increase and we saw it with covid massive over 20% devaluation of the purchasing power of the US dollar and that that just cuts the heart out of the people least able to um, to endure such a such an economic shock right and when the government dumps those mousetraps, it doesn't work to create mousetraps. We're not talking free market competition. They simply made a more efficient means of production of mousetraps. They just hit control P and printed all of those mousetraps. All of those mousetraps, indeed. So let's take that thought. If you're listening and you agree that the government is doing this now, especially in the United States, that has implications to you personally. It also has implications to us the church as we care for those around us who are maybe unable to store assets, unable to invest in stocks and bonds and hedge against the, the inflation, basically get closer to the money printer. And in a global sense, this actually hits many other countries in the world that trade in U.S. dollars, some of which have the dollar as their legal tender, example being El Salvador. I was just listening to a, a missionary talk uh, about how the Uruguayan peso has basically lost 100% of its purchasing power relative to the U.S. dollar. But it's even worse when you say, well, how much absolute purchasing power has it lost relative to a stable fixed point of value of which it's really hard to, to see anything without Bitcoin or without gold or some other formal fixed asset? Because the reality is that that 100% loss of purchasing power is 10x, 20x more because it's being measured relative to the U.S. dollar. So for us as believers, once we accept the reality that the government is doing this, now let's start a walk down that road. What does that mean with respect to you personally if you hold your value, your, your life energy, the amount of work that you have poured out that God has given you productively over weeks, months, years, decades, if you put that money into a dollar-denominated asset, what happens to it? Well, I would say for the last 35 years, the, the common wisdom has been buy real estate. If you buy real estate, it will appreciate in value and you will do well. Why is that? The answer is simple. It's because we've been in a 35-year declining interest rate market. 
and it's it's simple mathematics. As the rate of interest drops, the the value of the asset, the capitalized cash flows of the asset, cause its value in relative terms to increase. And and again, I'm old enough to say, yeah, I can remember buying a home with a with a mortgage of twelve percent, and that was a favorable rate mortgage. I was working at a bank at the time, and and they gave me a favorable rate home mortgage. Can you imagine the value of real estate today if we were back in a 12% interest rate environment? So the government has continued to squash interest rates. We're down at the zero bound. And, in the, and the result has been a massive increase in the value of homes, of real estate, which has created all kinds of housing dislocations and hardships for people. Those that have real estate have done really well with it. There's no question about it. They, you know, it's still in a dollar-denominated asset. We can talk about that later. But, but the reality is that those who don't own homes, who haven't been able to get close to it and, and benefit from the declining interest rates, have, uh, have been crushed. And, and we see further that a company like BlackRock, right, the $8 trillion hedge fund, investment fund, is, is gobbling up real estate because why? Well, they're close to the money printer. So they're, they're gobbling up real estate at, at zero interest rates, and they're going to become one of the biggest landlords in the country. And the point is they're trying to put their money into something that is holding value temporarily better than bonds or whatever else they could put that money into, right? They're trying to put to keep that money as a better store of value than anything else. And so putting it into real estate, which can yield some return through the form of rent, right? And ride the, the low interest rate appreciation curve upwards is a strategy that they are actively employing, looking at the macroeconomic trends of the world around us. Sure. And a lot of people have employed this strategy and done very well with it. And I think there's a disconnect. So there are a lot of middle-aged folks who are retiring and are are looking at um, quite a sizable net worth because they have ridden this housing bubble all the way up and they have levered up and bought multiple properties and turned around and turned them into rental properties and they've done quite well for themselves. And then in that same local church, there will be millennials and Zoomers who could never dream of affording a home and oftentimes would love to move out and would love to have be afforded the same opportunities that their parents and grandparents had. But oftentimes you'll find hardworking millennials and Zoomers who can't simply can't afford housing. And they, there's a disconnect. The, the people who have benefited from this system don't even necessarily realize that it has been at the expense of the next generation. Right. Not only that, my generation has mocked them. So sure, can we find examples of millennials that are lazy and don't work? Of course, you can find that example in any generation. But it, but it really, I think, just points out kind of a, honestly a hardness of heart to recognize um, the fact that we've done really, really well. Our generation has done really, really well at the expense of the younger generation. We, we have eaten the seed corn of our children and our grandchildren, and we feel no remorse. That's immoral. Yeah. And that brings us to one crisis moment, right? Which is to look at the, the reality that we can take steps to stop that today by investing in sound assets. But I think the other way to think about this is to look at your, yourself personally, even if you're not looking at others and saying, how am I going to help others here? 
But go through that personal process of saying, okay, if I earn this much money in a year and I want to put something away in savings, the concept of of savings, of stored value has been so distorted as well, because right now we start to think to ourselves, the only way I can hold value in this asset is by putting it in something extraordinarily risky, i.e. the stock market, which is not a a store of value as much as it is a a risk-based investment. Right. Right. It's become a casino where future cash flows in no way justify current stock prices. Right. So if you look at it and you say, okay, well, how well does a stock have to do for my money to hold its value? Well, if you're losing 10 to 20% of the purchasing power of your money every single year based upon the government printing, that means that stock has to appreciate at greater than 10 for you to appreciate any basic holding your your value at a, at a zero line, much less earning any money on that particular money. And there's no way that the bond market is going to provide you that yield. So where else are you going to go other than the risk of the stock market, which is in turn tied to the risk of that company and its corporate directors managing that company well, being in an industry that's going to survive whatever this world happens to throw at it. But we've lost the, the capacity to think about a savings account, right? Nobody ever thinks about putting their money in a bank anymore in a savings account because there's no way that that money's going to give you any yield. It's just losing its value sitting there. Right. So we're driven into a, a, an economic system where we, we continue to lever up. We borrow, we borrow, we borrow to consume today because the money's no good for tomorrow. So whether people can formally identify that or not, they, they kind of, in their gut, they know that well, prices are going to be higher next year. I might as well buy it now. I'll buy it on credit. They'll give it to me on time. I'll, I'll tap the equity in my home, right? So how do I, how do I take advantage of the massive run-up in assets? I do, I do home equity loans at cheap interest rates. And the government lets me deduct the, ta- the uh, interest expense on my tax return. So again, that, that kind of system, those that have, those that are close to the money do very, very well. And it's, it's that next generation, it's the children uh, that are getting uh, continually shut out. So we need sound money. We need hard money. Maybe, maybe we should talk about, you know, we've talked about fiat money. What is hard money? Yeah. And that's a great topic for us to move to. And it, it, it could be a, an entire episode in and of itself. And I, I'd like to point out here that what Will and Dave and I are talking about here is nothing new to us, right? We didn't come up with this content solely here. We, we've read tons. We've listened to a lot of great podcasts that we'd love to commend to you. Uh, the point here is to, to bring that conversation to a summary, a cohesive summary, and tie it together with what we just discussed and what we will continue to discuss as we move down the path to Bitcoin. But obviously, uh, generations of believers have been given the opportunity to say, what's your best money? What's your best option for money? And let's think about that. What makes a money sound? Indeed. Well, I mean, the, the more classical definitions of the characteristics of money, we could talk about those. It, it needs to be portable. In other words, you can move it from place to place. Uh, if, you're, if your money is, uh, is large stones on an island somewhere, then uh, it's pretty hard to move those around. So there needs to be portable. It needs to be durable. Uh, again, we talked about this uh, last episode that that gold may, was excellent money for a very very long time because it it never corrodes, it doesn't disappear, it doesn't dissipate. It needs to be divisible. 
So when the money needs to be able to be to, um, you know, it's why diamonds don't make good money. You, you know, you try to make change with a diamond and you end up with dust. So, uh, so not very, not very good, not very helpful. Uh, it, it needs to be a unit of account. I mean, it needs to be a means by which we can agree on the value of something. So, you know, a barter system is one thing, but a barter system leads to a very impoverished economy. But money that, that is a unit of account allows people to trade their labor uh, in some uh, understandable fashion and, and make plans accordingly. So it's the idea of then the medium of exchange, right? And then I think the one for me that, that really is so important is it has to be a store of value. It has to be a store of value because the most precious commodity I have beyond my life in Christ is, is however many minutes uh, the Lord grants me here on this earth. And so I work and I spend my time you know, through labor and I'm, and I'm, and I paid for my labor and, and I need some way to store that labor for a rainy day. And, uh, and so that ability to store value without having it, um, melted away underneath me, I think is a critical aspect of sound money. And that's why the hard money people, the people who have, have advocated gold and silver, you know, through the years, um, that's what originally got me into it was just thinking about that reality of store of value and hard money and, and the fact that gold um, uh, has, has historically had a, a very uh, nominal um, rate of increase. It was, the, it was the best game in town until Bitcoin. And let's, let's trace that a little bit further because you, you mentioned store of value as one of the characteristics, but I think that also ties back to scarcity. One of the reasons why gold has been one of, if not the best monies for any culture, whether they're modern or pre-modern, is the reality that you can't get more out of it out of the ground without really, really difficult labor, really expensive gold mining techniques, right? I think it'd be helpful for us to just introduce uh, those who haven't heard of it to the concept of the stock to flow ratio, right? So stock being the amount of gold above ground that you currently have, and then the flow being the amount that's mined every year or unit of time that you want to use. And the, 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 the stock to flow ratio highlights how scarce that asset is. If you have a large flow coming out of the ground, then that asset is not a very good store of value because you can just go get more of it, right? But if it's very difficult to get more, then that particular asset holds its value better than an asset with a higher flow in the denominator. Absolutely. That's why rice would make a poor money, right? Because the flow is too high versus the stock. And that's what made, has historically made gold an excellent money. Well, and you can look and see, so in Africa, they used glass beads as money. Um, they lacked the ability to easily manufacture more glass beads. So there was, there was scarcity. It, it, it helped the, the, the money to hold its value because no one was making more of it. And then Europeans came along with glass making technology manufactured a whole bunch of glass beads, brought them to Africa, dumped them onto the market, bought up all the goods in the marketplace and bankrupt the entire economy of Africa because all of a sudden the money had lost the scarcity. And when money loses its scarcity, it loses its value. So let's, let's trace that a little bit further too, because you both have continued to highlight the reality that scarcity makes money good. But 
let's take the reality of well as well that good money yields good culture yields good business it, it yields a lot of good things just as much as we're abusing fiat and rightfully so and tracing the what does fiat do to us and to our society if if you read a great book like the bitcoin standard one of the great things that it does as well is take you on the historical journey of how societies that stayed true to a fixed standard of hard money most of the time gold uh, accelerated and maintained their growth as a society even though their monetary system could not grow with it right you couldn't make more gold so the the modern keynesian idea that for a society to grow you have to have the capacity to print more money to match that growth is just a falsehood in reality society grows a heck of a lot better even down to its art and its culture when the money is sound and wise <clears throat> when your money doesn't hold value it it not only incentivizes but it requires consumption so if we stretch it to the extreme, let's let's say someone comes to you and they give you a million dollars, but they say you can't give it to anyone else. And tomorrow morning I'm going to come back and I'm going to collect whatever is left. Well, obviously you're going to go out and you're going to spend it all right away. You have one day, spend it all. That's really what the government is doing just over a longer time frame, right? They, when they come along and they say, we're going to, we're going to print money and the money that you have is, is being devalued at a constant rate and an ever increasing right now, uh, what you're doing is you're saying, Hey, you can't store value into the future. So great, great grandfather had a hundred dollars and that would have bought the whole farm. If he kept it under his mattress, it's worth nothing. Now he wouldn't even buy you a nice dinner. So that, that requires you. Okay. Well, I can't, I can't pass it on to anyone. Best I can do is just consume it and and enjoy that hedonistic lifestyle because what else can i do so that propagates into society and you it in, it infects and infests the cultural values and incentivizes what they call high time preference spending whereas if your money holds value long into the future you can say hey you know what i can i'm going to delay my current consumption and I, and i'm going to i'm going to invest into something that matters I'm going to build that big cathedral. I'm going to, I'm going to hire an artist that's going to take 10 years to paint this painting, right? Because my money's going to hold in far into the future. And I can think about my great, great grandchildren and what they're going to do. I can have an impact on them. That's really good. Will. and, and I remember coming to this realization last year and, and you said it really well here. If you're somebody who is trying to stay afloat and your money is losing value every single day, you can't work enough right? It's not that you don't even have time to, to do a beautiful painting or, or read a good book, but you can't work enough. And that has a bleed over effect into the rest of your life. You can't be a good dad. You can't spend enough time with your kids. You can't spend time with your wife. You can't take her out on a date. You can't go to the church men's Bible study because you had to work late that night. You can't volunteer on a Saturday to go help cut wood for a lady in the church who needs help with it because, oh, I got to work on Saturdays, man. Uh, ends ends don't meet anymore, and and in reality, you're cutting yourself off from your personal growth too. You can't read books, you can't expand your creative horizons, you can't do anything because you're just trying to keep up with a standard of money that you can't control. It, it almost reminds me of the Jetsons. 
that uh, that old cartoon where they had the the dog on the on the treadmill and and the it begins to I forget how I think the a cat entices the dog or something and hits the switch and it starts going faster and faster and faster until they finally fall then but that really has been the American working person's experience um, for the vast majority of people for the for their lifetime is that they work harder and harder, longer and longer, and they do not get ahead. And now it's two income families, right? So now in order to even try to, to rent a, you know, a small hooch somewhere, both people who make what was once considered a pretty good salary working hard just to try to, to make ends meet and to keep it going. And you're right, Simon, there's, there's incredible personal uh, loss just in terms of growth, time with the Lord, time with others, um, your children, the investment in, in the future of your children, it, it's all being consumed. And, and I think people sense that. I think, I think there's, a, there's a lot of angst out there, but, I, but people don't know why. They know it's not right, but they don't, then fundamentally they, they don't know why. And it's because we take the monetary system for granted and it's not taught to us anywhere. I think most people are like fish that don't know they're wet. You look around and you see prices rising and you, you in instinctively think, well, things are just getting more expensive. No one stops and thinks maybe it's just that my money isn't worth as much. You assume that your money is a constant. Yes. You assume that your money is, is a ruler by which you can measure right. the weight of things. And the U.S. dollar is a rubber ruler. And, and it distorts every single measurement that you make. I, I was talking with my dad this morning and, and he was saying, yeah, you know, we were talking about actually some of these very same issues. And he was saying, yeah, the house now it's worth like $500,000. He said, it's crazy. I only paid $14,500 for it. And, and I said, yeah, dad, it is crazy. Cause it's the same house. It's the same wood, the same nails. Nothing really has changed that much. Yeah, you've, you know, you've put maybe 60 grand worth of improvements in it, you know, over the last 50 years, but, but fundamentally it's the same thing. So how can, how does 14,000 go to 500,000 in the same house? So the answer is obviously the dollar has just been completely debased. And to draw that one step further, if you as an employer are trying to be fair and equitable with your employees, you try to pay them equitably, but you can't keep up your profit margins and your growth rates as a company must now grow at double digit growth rates to be able to pay your workers a salary that increases at almost double digits just to be fair and just to, to keep the status quo. And, and obviously as a Christian employer, right, you'd love to be even more than just fair. You'd love to be generous You'd love to reward good workers with, with good rewards, right? You'd like to, to mirror the attitudes and attributes of your great God, and you can't. So that brings us to a critical question. If we, if we all agree that the dollar is not where it's at and that we have to find our alternatives, again, you know our bias is going to be towards Bitcoin, but let's be fair and think through what many of you are thinking through right now, what are my alternatives? If I can't save in dollars, what else can I use? Right. So let's go down the list. Real estate. It's been a really good bet for three decades. 
until now. So, so all of a sudden now, if you own rental properties, the government tells you you can't collect your rent anymore and you can't evict those that aren't paying your rent. So, so all of a sudden you're, you should be asking yourself, Oh, wait a minute. What kind of an asset is this that can be impaired by, by decree, not even through a legal system. And so yeah, if you own rental properties now, yeah, I think you need to begin to ask yourself, okay, is this really going to, for the next 30 years, is this going to do as well as it's done in the 30 years leading up to it? Not to mention the fact that rising real estate taxes. And so if you really think you own property, don't pay your taxes for a year and you'll find out that you really don't. So, so I'm, you know, real estate has been a great bet. I, it, it's hard to see it doing the same thing again. And the maintenance costs are rising. I mean, look at lumber prices that that skyrocketed. There's all kinds of of threats to the system from from the outside. A rental property is not a buy it and forget it thing. It requires constant maintenance and care. So you could buy bonds. The problem is that they're all at the zero bound of interest rates. And so, again, simple math: if interest rates were to go from you know one to three percent, your your bond's going to get destroyed. You're going to lose forty percent of the value of your bond. You, so, might be, you might be paying the government the privilege of owning a bond in the future here. You may very well. You may very well. So it drives you now into the stock market, right? So people paying, you know, incredible multiples of, of earnings. And, you know, do we really think that, that Amazon is going to continue to do what it did in the last 10 years? Is it going to do it again? Maybe it will. But boy, you're putting a lot of faith in that system. And you're putting pressure on yourself to either pay someone to manage your investments for you well, or to do the due diligence yourself, to take more of your precious time beyond the amount of work that you put in and now put in the second job's worth of work managing your real estate or your your investments in the stock market. Indeed. So Bitcoin. Or gold. Or gold. I was a gold guy and, uh, you know, true confessions, I still have a little. (laughs) (laughs) We're waiting for repentance on that. <laughs> so why gold? Well, it's been money for 5,000 years. It, it's socked to flow is, is uh, you know, is, is very, very low. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's not getting debased as quickly. Uh, although certainly with the amount of monetary inflation we've had in the last, you know, year or so, uh, gold should be doing much better than it's doing. The physical gold is not being debased. No. But. There you go. Portability. Gold is not very portable. So it ends up being stuck in vaults. So if the average person, you or I, our gold would be pretty portable because we could <laughs> stick it in our pocket. We're not that rich. True <laughs> enough. But when we're talking serious quantities of gold, it's bank vaults full. So it ends up being centralized. And once it's centralized, it's there's regulatory capture. And now most gold is paper derivatives. True statement. And those have been debased heavily. And to draw it further, as as all we've all, all of us have alluded to, gold has been the best store of value for thousands of years. And and holding to that and looking at it and saying, I've done pretty well with gold. If if you bought gold back in 2013, like I did at thirteen hundred dollars an ounce, and now you're at eighteen hundred dollars an ounce, you've you feel like you're do, you're doing pretty well. But in reality, if you look at the ten year return on gold. It's down. And, and then you also have to ask yourself the, the philosophical question of, am I on the same side as the central banks? 
knowing that central banks hold a huge amount of gold. And in fact, some of countries out there are stockpiling gold, right? So whether or not they're intending to have nefarious designs on that gold or not, the reality is you're competing with them and you are also playing in their playground at which they're probably far better at playing in than, than you are. And as we've all kind of highlighted, even though gold is good, the portability aspect really limits it, especially if you're looking at, can I use my gold to support a missionary across the world? Heck no, right? You're not going to pay any amount of money to get that gold across the world to that missionary and to, to share with him the store of value that you believe it is. The, the bullish case for gold is to wait for a monetary reset, hope that the powers that be use the gold in their reserves to back the next currency, and that they throw you a few crumbs from the table, that your private gold holdings will rise as a result. But you are really hoping for nothing more that the evil empire wins again, and you get to continue on with your investment. Yeah, and then it'll take them another hundred years to debase it to zero again. <laughs> so let's let's bring this episode to a close with one last question. Then, so obviously we can't answer this one in the lot, little time that we have remaining here, but we do need to address it because obviously, if you're thinking and listening to us, you probably have questions, and one of those questions is is the question of is Bitcoin actually money? I know this was one of my questions when I first came to Bitcoin, right? And it, is it something that is capable of functioning the way that a money should function? Does it meet all of those attributes that David shared with us in terms of what a money has to do? And more importantly, is it sound money? So maybe I'll turn to you first, Will, since you so succinctly gave me this uh, spiel not more than a year ago. Sure. Yes. Bitcoin is money. Uh, Everything is money. Money is not a binary thing. It is not that one thing is money and another thing is not money. All things are constantly in competition to be the best money. So when you're looking, it's, it's, it's easy to think of, okay, the, the properties of money, the portability, durability, divisibility, fungibility, scarcity, they, are they, they're a checklist, right? So, oh, if it meets all these things, then it's money. That's, that's not true. It's these things are a, a way to measure the soundness of money, how good something functions as money. So if you are a tomato farmer and you have tomatoes, those tomatoes are, are a form of money. Now, they're relatively portable, but they're not very durable. So you're probably not going to store your life savings in tomatoes unless you plan on forming a pizza business and being wildly <laughs> successful. Uh, so when, when we look at is Bitcoin money, well, if everything is money and everything is in a competition of money, then it really is just what best fulfills the attributes of money. So portability, Bitcoin is infinitely portable because it doesn't exist, right? It's everywhere and nowhere at once. It's digital. Is it scarce? It's the scarcest thing that humans have ever known apart from our time. 21 million units that will, will ever exist. The total number of units, irrelevant. Could have been one unit, could have been 100 million units. The, the material point is that, it, that the, the amount of units is unchangeable, right? So, so it's, it's fundamentally scarce. It's divisible. It's digital, so it's infinitely divisible. Gold is only kind of divisible, which is why silver was functioned as money for a long time. It was the people's money because you know, what are you can take your, your zester to go buy a loaf of bread and just <laughs> give them a couple <laughs> quick <laughs> of your gold bar. Whittle a little off. Whittle a little off. Oh, too much. <laughs> you lick my finger and try to make change. Nice tip. Yep. <laughs> 
so store of value that is remains to be seen to some extent. I mean, if you look over a 10 year period where Bitcoin has been around, it has done pretty well as a store of value. Um, unit of account that is, that's your choice. So do you, can you price things in Bitcoin? I try to. So when I look around at real estate, I try to price it in Bitcoin and it looks like everything's getting real cheap to me. I, I would completely agree. In fact, uh, Simon, the, um, you were saying the hyperinflation, uh, I would argue measured against Bitcoin, the dollar is in hyperinflation. Uh, when I first bought Bitcoin last year, it was three Bitcoins for a new car. It's now half a Bitcoin for a new car. So using that as a, as a measure, things are getting cheaper for me all the time. And for those who may listen to this episode later, we're recording today when Bitcoin is hovering right around $50,000 on its way back up again. Okay, so we agree that Bitcoin is money because we agree that money is something that uh, we as human beings have been able to do uh, with the things that we accumulate and, and exchange with one another. I was reminded of uh, my Bible reading this week. We were reading in the book of Ezekiel of all places where uh, the judgment against the nation of Tyre is handed out. And when you're in Ezekiel chapter 27, you you get to see how Tyre was basically the, the, the exchange place of the entire world, right? People came in to Tyre and they exchanged silver and iron and tin and lead and horses and ivory tusks and ebony and coral and rubies and linen and cakes and honey. And the, the point being here is that if you can exchange it, it can be money, but it has to hold its value long enough for you to then exchange it with someone else and to maybe put it away and save it for the next generation. So to your point, Will, Bitcoin has been around since 2009. To this point, it has held its value exceptionally well, better than any monetary system that we've ever seen. But not only does it hold its value in time, this is what really differentiates from gold is it holds its value over space. Dollars were created, any paper certificate were created because you could not move gold fast enough and accurately enough and cheaply enough over distances, over right. large so, countries, oceans. So you have the gold certificates. Right. But the reality that Bitcoin is not a physical entity, that it is a digital speed of light creation, allows its value to be transferred over great distances exceptionally fast without losing its value, which is really the heart of the, the monetary system, the monetary network that Bitcoin is creating, which will allow us to, to share our resources with whoever needs it, whenever need, they need it, 24-7, in the, in the now, not just in the future. Mm -hmm. I would imagine there are a lot of Christians right now in Afghanistan that wish they had Bitcoin. Yes. Bitcoin is not just a, a interesting alternative or a, or a good idea. It's a technological breakthrough. So to your point, Simon, about saleability across space, Bitcoin is the first money humans have ever had that allows us to transmit value from one person to another at distance without an intermediary. That has never been possible with any other form of money. You can't pay someone on the other side of the world without having to trust a third party apart from Bitcoin. And pay the exchange rates. Exactly. So you want to do it in gold, you got to pay someone to, to carry it across. You want to do it with dollars? Well, you're riding on the Visa third-party rails or PayPal or Square or whatever third-party system you're using. 
anything else that you want to do, there is always a third party taking a cut or that you, you're just trusting to, to carry it out for you. Right. You're subject to confiscation. Well, good. So I think we'll bring it to a close tonight because we could talk about this all night long, but you can't listen to it all night long. So uh, for the sake of time, we'll just thank you for, for listening with us. Again, our, our passion is to see God's name proclaimed. And for that reason, we, we feel it necessary to, to explain to you our rationale for why we passionately believe that Bitcoin is the monetary system of the now. I, I hope that you've come to your crisis moment. If you haven't yet, that's okay. We'll pray for you. <laughs> you keep praying for us. We'll keep praying for you. But if you have come to your crisis moment, then, then you need to act. And as I said before, action looks a lot different for different individuals. Uh, you may be ready to go out and buy some right now. If that's, if that's you, that's great. I would encourage you. It's, it's on the way up. <laughs> you're you're going to get a, you're going to get a deal right now if you buy it. Right. But at the moment, you, if you may not be ready to buy it right now, you might need to start saving your money and putting it aside to put it into Bitcoin. If so, you need to start educating yourself. And there's a lot of different ways to educate yourself. We're, our goal over the, the episodes we're putting together here is to connect you with the best resources. And some of you are book readers. You need to read the Bitcoin Standard and Layered Money, and there's other books that we can recommend to you. Some of you don't read books, or you don't have the time to read a whole book. And, it, and if you're so in that, in that scenario, we'd love to commend to you some of the excellent short-form articles that may be enough information for you to educate yourself. Some of you are auditory learners and you'd love to do your work riding around on the lawnmower and listening to podcasts. If so, we'd love to connect you with some of our favorites and some of the best resources and people that can help you understand and answer your questions, address your concerns and educate you further. But the moral of the story is take action. Don't wait, right? And don't tell yourself, oh, when it drops again to 15,000, that's when I'll buy in because you won't. Right. And the reality is you need to think about this as an investment that, that you're going to hold for at least four years, if not more than that. No one who has ever bought Bitcoin and held it for four years has lost money on it to this point. So we would encourage you to to take action in some sense. And so we'll pray for you, but we'll continue to put together good content for you as you wait and uh, educate yourself further. But uh, with that, uh, any, any closing thoughts for you, Will? Yeah, you can buy Bitcoin in as small of a dollar amount as you want. So go get yourself a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. Get off zero. Just get something. And that way you can start there. You have a little skin in the game. That way at least you have something to, to observe. It'll, it'll pique your interest a little bit. You'll find yourself a little more compelled to investigate. What is this thing I actually own? And I think that for some of the people that I've talked to, that has been helpful for them. Just to get a little bit, even if it's not a lot, they don't fully understand it yet. Get a little bit, hold it, start learning about it. Start learning, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the, um, the world changed in, uh, in 2020. And so I don't, I don't think anybody can just sit back anymore and, and say, well, it, this is too complicated. I, I don't understand it, and, and I don't want to understand it. You don't have the luxury anymore. They've gone from, from debasing your life savings from a, a few percent a year to 20% a year. If you do nothing, you will be wiped out. And I'll return to the, what, the introductory question I gave you. Is it too late? No, it's not too late. It's time for you to do what I did, to do what each one of us did. Repent, trust in God, take his providential provision of Bitcoin and act. And then 
share it with others because just like the gospel, it's never too late to share that good news with other people as well. So thank you so much for listening. Look forward to sharing with you next time and we'll keep praying for you.